0: Greetings Grapple fans It's time once again for two different generations of wrestling fans to watch A list of matches that someone from an even earlier generation of wrestling fan has decreed are worthy of a five-star rating or even higher. It's Let Me Tell You Something. I'm your co-host, Lorcan Mullen, and with me is my co-host... Simon Cross. And we are working through all the matches that Dave Meltzer has rated five stars or higher. Hopefully, we'll be able to see some patterns emerge and get some sort of idea about the history of the what was considered the best of wrestling from the early 80s all the way through to the modern day and we're about to embark on a self-contained quadrilogy yes that's right the word made up for the alien box sets um, <laughs> is is finally upon us as we will be watching one after the other not 1 not 2 not 3 which is what people usually associate with them but four matches that took place between February of 1989 and May of 1989 between Ric Flair and Ricky Steamboat. Maybe some, considered by some, the greatest match or even matches of all time within this list. So, yeah. Simon, how aware were you of Ric Flair? And Ric- Obviously, we've already discussed Ric Flair so far as a, a trilogy of matches that he we've seen with him and Barry Windham. And so this will be the fourth instance of Ric Flair being on our um, on our viewing list, and the first time for Ricky Steamboat. How aware were you of this rivalry, and how aware are, were you of Ricky Steamboat?
1: I'd always heard a lot of wrestlers talk about this trilogy of matches um, as like one of the defining trilogies of what good work is. The, I, I knew this was held in heart. These would the match the the classic trilogy of these uh, matches was always held in high regard. Um, didn't know a lot, didn't know about the fourth one to be brutally honest uh, before we started our research for this project. It's, it's, it's weird. Cause I've never sought out watching them despite hearing how good they are. Maybe it's like me just like being too snobbish towards older wrestling. So, mm one of the joys of doing what we're doing is the fact that I step outside my comfort zone. I've watched stuff so far I wouldn't normally have watched and will continue to do so. Um, but I just really, I can see, I mean, I don't want to give the farm away here in terms of like how I feel about this, but having start starting this journey now, I can see why it was talked about in such high regard. Mm.
0: Yeah, it's, um, I have watched all the matches before. The one that I watched, first of all, I remember it was the final match in this series. So we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. But that was one of the first matches where the WWE took advantage of their tape library when they purchased WCW uh, back in 2001. And they had the rights to all of the archival footage. And I got the Triple H DVD, the game I think it was called. And it pretty much I bought it for the match that was included, because it wasn't just Triple H's matches. I don't recall if there were many matches of Triple H's on there, because this was still kind of the early days of DVDs and figuring out what they wanted to do with extra features and what have you. And um, one of the extra features was Triple H essentially putting on the match that influenced him. And so that was the Ric Flair-Ricky Steamboat match that was at Wrestle War, uh, the feud kappa. Which will be the 4th entrant in this series, the nine, the 18th overall of this list. Um, so, then when the, I think when the network came along, I made... No, 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 it wasn't when the network came, it was when the Ric Flair collection on DVD came out. Where I said previously that Barry Wyndham, the second one of the Barry Windham Ric Flair matches was on that set as well. And they included each of the three Ricky Steamboat matches in their collection. So I watched them again then, and I think I may have watched them again when I first got on the network four years ago now, or well, more than four years ago, which is crazy to think about. We'll be coming up on five years of the WWE Network soon. Ah. Uh, That's pretty crazy.
1: It's mental to think about how how long it took them to get it off the ground as well. Mm. But the fact that these matches were included in all these different DVDs, uh, and a worker as fine as Triple H says that, again, one of the later matches in the series we'll talk about was one of the influencing matches in his, like, wrestling career. It just shows just, like, how revered this was. just reinfor- reinforces my point from earlier that these, before we talk about this, this is, like, hallowed in a way. Yeah. I-, I was a little bit yeah. apprehensive this is like because...
0: Th- particularly the final match is kind of like the Citizen Kane of pro-wrestling. Like, for the longest time, as close as you got to a definitive, unanimous... You can't have it unanimous, but as close as you got to a unanimous agreement of this is the greatest wrestling match, at least within the modern context of when matches are available and televised and recorded and kept for posterity. Uh You know, you can talk about how great all the Briscoe funk matches and everything else like that was, but we don't really have a lot on to record go on. to go on to compare it to. Um, so that's where the, and, and like especially within North America I think very often these will be cited as the best matches or the best mm. match in North American wrestling tradition. And um, that carries
1: it makes it makes me a little, it made me a little well, bit nervous it's, it's going like, in.
0: It's like how a lot of people are put off watching a film like Citizen Kane because what if it? you don't like, like so it? So this is supposed to be the greatest movie of all time. Yeah, And, you know, I think for most people you won't have that experience when you watch it. But it's still a great movie. It's kind of a shame, in a weird way, that it's become like an albatross. That people won't watch Citizen Kane. When all it is, is, is a really, really, really good movie. Mm. <laughs> you know? Um, and And that's maybe what puts some people off watching these. But I can assure you, these are... Well, let's just talk about the first one. This is a really, really good wrestling match. Surprisingly short, really, when you look at it. Uh, to give you an idea that the match length is 23 minutes and 18 seconds. And I think that's shorter. It might not be It might be about the same length as Ric Flair's third match with Barry Windham. Mm. But I think one of the things I feel when I watch this is that this almost feels like it's the opening chapter to a longer story. Because a lot of this match, really, it seemed Because in these matches, Ricky Steamboat will take the... uh, Like, it's traditionally the way the the babyface will get the controlling... Will control the start of the match. Something will happen. A cheat, an accident, a mistake is made. And then the heel takes over. And then the babyface makes their comeback. To me, it felt like the story of this match, more than anything, was Ric Flair's underestimation of Ricky Steamboats. Because... I don't think Ric Flair gets a lot in this match.
1: No, not Maybe really. Not, but
0: that's how I felt. Uh,
1: it'll, it's a weird one because <gasps> it stems really around Steamboat being in control, and he'll um, he'll have the side headlock locked in, and then he'll quicken the pace up for like a split second. Or he'll hit he'll hit a drop kick or so, go for a near fall. And then he slows the pace back down again. It's very peak trough, peak trough. It's like high-intensity training equivalent of wrestling.
0: Yeah, they keep their cards close to their chest almost. It's like... It's almost like clinch in a boxing match. And then they will briefly engage in a flurry. And in that flurry, often instigated by Ric Flair, but pretty much always won by Ricky Steamboat. Yeah, they'll start to trade off with chops, or they'll get into the corner and they'll slap or whatever. But usually, it's Ricky, it is Ricky Steamboat that comes out on top each of these times, and then they go back to the ground, they go back to the lockup, they go back to trading holds, but it is always Ricky Steamboat that keeps control. In a way, it's very much structured like the uh, Barry Windham, the second Barry Windham match, in that... Ricky Steamboat just has the better of Ric Flair throughout the whole of the opening exchange. And it's only when Ric Flair pulls Steamboat out of the ring and brawls on the outside and starts slamming him into the guardrails and everything that he starts to get any kind of anything close to an advantage. And even then it gets fought back. Like, there's not as sustained a period of dominance from Ric Flair as you might expect. No.
1: It's like um, if a team was being, like, just pressed out the park by Man City and then you start hoofing it long. If you've got a target, man, yeah, they'll knock a ball down or two, but after that, they'll cut on onto what you're doing. In combat sports terms, like there's times in fights where boxers have to change their strategy, but if you're against a great tactician, that person knows your game plan and your backup game plan. It doesn't matter what what one you put out, he has a you know, he's got a strategy to defeat it.
0: Mm. I'd be curious to see what your first note was for this match, Simon, because my very first note about the match itself, and it carries through to the rest of the ho- the whole match, the chops are so hard. I don't know if it's just because of how they've got it mic's or something, but there is a ringing sound to every yeah. one of those chops. That I'm not sure if it's do on each other.
1: the fact that the arena's, like, a bit open. Mm-hmm. Not, like... Not everyone's not on my top of each other. It's not like some of the modern, sort of steep arenas you get. It's mm. it's a little shallower, um, which I think makes a, an acoustic difference as well. Possibly the fact that the microphones, the way the, like, the whole area is mic'd up, but it's the way the crowd reacts as well. It's just like the the wincing, that's yeah. that's loud and the as ref, well.
0: The refs, Tommy Young, is really good at reacting to the moves as they take place in the ring. Like if someone hits a hard chop, he, he winces. Yeah, he backs away for a second, like he's felt it.
1: Yeah, the more and more I'm seeing of Tommy Young, the the more and more I can see why he was Ric Flair's personal personal favorite as a referee. Mm. Um.
0: It's, it's... Yeah, the crowd's eating up everything. Like, there's a moment really early in the exchange where Steamboat has flared down for a headlock takedown. Mm-hmm. And the two count is as close as you get, like, in the finishing straights of a Kurt Angleshaw-Michaels match or something. They really do
1: cut it fine throughout the two counts. Their timing is really, really good. Mm. Um, And it just goes to show, because... <laughs> If you said to someone that this was a five-star match and one of the predominant manoeuvres in this match was a side headlock... It doesn't really, like, compute in a lot, a lot of people's... I don't think that would compute in a lot of people's minds.
0: But the funny thing is that, like, they were seen in the 70s when they were having their first run of matches in the late 70s against each other for, like, the television titles or the equivalents of them, and then in the early 80s with the United States titles and, and also in the late 70s for that. They were often criticised as working the equivalent of, like, an Omega, um, you know, Will Ospreay style of everything going too over the top that it's too fast that they're doing too much they're doing too many moves and yet what we're looking back in hindsight is how good their arm drags are or their headlock takedowns are yeah or anything like that
1: no one's had no, we've not seen a spike Rana yet
0: no <laughs> yeah, from... what do you think of um, JR's commentary Really, he really emphasises the history behind it, the lineage. Like, he talks about yeah. how the belt was first fended in 1905. Not 1905, it's 1905. 1905. Yeah. Um, and he's... saying, like, the, the title had changed hands in Chicago only twice in its history. Oh, all I awesome. like that
1: because that's the kind of stuff that genuine sportscasters do. Genuine sportscasters point out genuine little quirks, such as... Prior to the twenty eighteen World Cup, England had not won a penalty shootout in the tournament. And that was like alluded to the more and more the more and more we got through the Columbia game, the more and more it was spoken about beforehand. You know well, it was spoken about beforehand, but the more and more it was alluded to. And that draws people in. It's like, oh God, this is something to consider.
0: The thing is you don't need to worry about people knowing that in England. We know. We remind yeah. ourselves. But I imagine that the Colombian commentator or the Polish commentator, if they were any good at their job, were probably pointing that out as well. That to countries that maybe don't pay as much attention to the England football team's triv- uh, triumphs and and much more regular failures. Yeah,
1: and it's 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 completely random and arbitrary um, penalty shootouts.
0: But what in... isn't random and arbitrary is professional wrestling. Let's get back to that. And let's
1: get back to that. And it's the fact that they point it, but the the way they present the facts yeah. in the same manner just yeah. shows that they're going to, They it's a serious sporting product. How that about they this couldn't... as
0: well for historical context? In the final match that Ric Flair had on WWE against Shawn Michaels when they re- did the retirement angle, one of the things they did was him essentially uh, reversing all the spots that he was famous for getting caught in. Like, when, when he did the lift, the the charge to the top rope, and Rick Shaw Michaels went to throw him off like always happened, Ric Flair actually stopped him and hit what he wanted to hit, and the joke was he's finally hit it after however many years. What's been interesting looking back at the Barry Windham match and this these matches is that Flair was hitting this quite often. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if he gets thrown over the top in this... Um, one, but like he goes for a cross body at various points and um, you know, he does the well, he would do the flare flip, that was what he was always doing and then he'd run to the corner and ch- climbs to the top rope. And if you were like me who hadn't seen him hit anything when I was a kid growing up, you were like, Why does he do this every time? Well, he actually would win he would actually do quite well with that, usually. It works <laughs> all right in training. So like... in the eighties it was still quite an effective move a lot of the time. Old habits so like, die hard. I've always wondered why the crossbody reverse into a cradle is so effective, because oftentimes they haven't even got the other leg hooked like it's an inside cradle, but they still somehow win. Just I guess I, I think it's it just is. the
1: um, momentum. Yeah, I think that's the main momentum.
0: Momentum. That you know they're still not being pinned to the mat like in a tight cradle or anything like that. It's always been a weird little thing to me. It's just the laws of wrestling that if you hit a crossbody and someone pins you from that. For some reason, it's really hard to kick out. <laughs> Even yeah. though you haven't actually just been cross-bodied.
1: But um, the cross-body itself, just, I know we're like, focusing on a specific move here, it's it's like a really powerful like move throughout. I mean, um, I didn't go into this thinking, okay, what would... I thought stream... That's what I thought Steamboat's finisher was going to be going into this from my knowledge of Steamboat, mm. and when he hits it, and um, well, when he first tries for it, you can see how much of a big deal it is that he's swinging for the fences finally, mm. um, by going for the crossbody, and it's so it's, it's weird. The whole what's weird about this match is that Steamboat. Comes really roaring out like out the gates, and for the longest time, he's in control.
0: Yeah,
1: like to me, the way I had a steamboat got match going in my head is that he would be fighting from underneath at the start, and we've sort of covered that. This is Ric Flair's underestimation of steamboat in mm-hmm. this. I don't know, just be- in my head, I had him more scrappy
0: than he. I think it's because he's so good at taking a beating. He's so yeah. good at eliciting uh, sympathy. And he can make it look he can make a match feel epic even if it's very early into the match. He's, he sweats a lot. He's in phenomenal shape, but he sweats a lot. It's like Brock
1: though. Brock mm. sweats.
0: You know what's also interesting when they get the figure four in, um and he's doing all the usual, grabbing onto the ropes whilst the refs counting the threes and everything. Uh Steamboat slaps the mat. Oh, can't that... that can't do that anymore. <laughs> yeah, that really threw me because I was like, "Oh.
1: Oh, okay. That, that was anticlimactic." And then the matches continued happening.
0: <laughs> yeah, I recently watched um the second season of Glow. And it's one of the few times that they've got the wrestling like actually inaccurate mm. is that they have them doing tap outs in like the mid-80s. And I was like, "I can't imagine they were that ahead of the time as far as the culture of submission holds were they? Were they doing regular jiu-jitsu training and everything like that. No, it's just funny, like, because what was he used in slapping the mat was obviously to get the crowd to clap along and, and yeah. cheer him on. Yeah, I
1: cottoned on to that Like after my initial, like, oh my God! <laughs> yeah.
0: And, of course, the ref, again, interfering a lot more, breaking the figure four. And it's like, finally, at that point, Ric Flair has finally got a little bit of control and advantage, and he immediately starts strutting and feeling good about himself and quickly Steamboat comes back into it, and then they do a, a lot of the same spots you see from the Barry Windham matches, like Ric Flair doing the crossbody that sends them both over the top. Um, he go, he brings him back in for a vertical suplex. He's doing a lot of the stuff, but maybe Steamboat's just that bit better than Windham that it looks better. Maybe because he's smaller and more agile, and it might be a bit easier. They're... of. Slightly similar heights. Steamboat's build is five eleven, but he looks more than an inch taller than, than Flair. And Flair was always built as six foot, so Steamboat's probably close to five ten. Just 5'10 a shade narrower a half, uh, uh, in
1: a, terms a, of like frame as well. So yeah,
0: yeah, he's very he's very lean, very. Slim. Whereas Wyndham had
1: like the height advantage. Yeah,
0: well, Wyndham. Like... Well, Wyndham always wrestled smaller than he was in a weird way. Like he never did wrestle like a monster big guy when. You know the dude was like six foot five, six foot six when you mm. can easily wrestle that way. He never did. Um, so Steamboat, because he's smaller, maybe he's able to do the agile moves. You know, because there are a few. There's, I think there was like one little awkward moment. I don't think I made a note of what it was here. But other than that, it's just so smooth. They know each other. so... You know, they've had this match. And yeah, continue to have this match so many times.
1: It's uh, um, really interesting to see how much, considering that Flair is working someone who is at least build as smaller than him, and and he has a physical advantage. Just how much, because Steamboat's unsettled is, I think it's the because Steamboat's unsettled is riven. He cheats a lot in this match. Yes,
0: he cheats very heavily throughout this match. Um, yeah, and yeah, it's just he, he does he does a lot of hands on the ropes. Um, there's a, a foot on the ropes. They say that he wins. He tries to win the same way that he beat Lex Luger at Starcade with the feet on the ropes from a pinfall. So that's yeah. a nice little callback. Um, oh, also we must we haven't mentioned yet. Who's in the crowd in the front row? There are a few uh, members of the Chicago Bears being pointed out around the place, but sitting right next to one of them is, is it... Dave Meltzer.
1: Ah, boy, Dave, sporting a glorious perm.
0: A Kevin Keegan would be proud of that perm, and the very a sort of like. What's also interesting? Let's just talk briefly about Dave. He reacts like a fan.
1: Yeah, he's not writing anything down.
0: No, that's interesting.
1: He's in the moment.
0: Yeah, and he's like cheering when they come towards them, and like you know when when steamboat. And he's like cheering on steamboat, from what I can recall. He's like cheering the face, booing the heel. Even though at that point he thinks like Ric Flair is the greatest wrestler in the world, or at least along those lines. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I don't have a lot more other than just how good Steamboat is at willing himself back into the match. It's not that he suddenly he doesn't do like a Hulk Hogan Hulk Cup or anything. It's like he keeps trying to fight back. When when, when he's taking the beating, he's still mm. trying to hit and just usually they'll be cut off, but then gradually over time they can't cut him off and he's back into it. Yeah. It's it's not like if you were to make a list of who's in attack, it's like a list of steamboat moves, then a list of flare moves, then a list of steamboat moves. It's like yeah, steamboat, flare, steamboat, flare, steamboat, yeah. flare, steamboat, steamboat, flare, flare. You know, you know what I mean?
1: Yes. It's not like blocks. Yeah. Which is good because mm. that's like the famed classic cookie formula for a match that um, can become so derisory when you see it on a week by week basis. No matter what um, wrestling show you watch, you know there will be a formula. There's some always a formulaic feel to a large portion of it, but you don't get that with this match. Mm. Um, what's interesting to me is that Flair has a manager.
0: Yes, at Matsuda. This was an interesting bridging period because in the late 80s, the Four Horsemen were still going strong: Ric Flair, Barry Windham, uh, Arn Anderson, and Tully Blanchard. But then Arn and Tully went to the WWF, um, and very soon after, J.J. Dillon left to the WWF as well. But he was only as a managerial office role; he never was an on-screen talent. Um, so instead of just the four horsemen not existing, there was this notion that the Japanese are bought in. So this is at the height of like Japanese tech fears, of like Japan not taking over America milita- militarily, but in economically, economically. that they were going to become the superpower of them. Um, Of the time, which is also sort of... That was what they were eating into the fears with the Yokozuna character a few years later in WWF. And then you've got that... um... Overtaking us industrially, and and companies like Sony and and so on, and and Japanese cars and everything, were buying American businesses. And in that Um... famous
1: Simpson episode with Herb Simpson... Mm. that's where the threat's coming from for him. It's like all these Japanese car makers are undermining his business, and that's why he turns to his brother to design a car that an average American would like.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, that's that's what that's leaning into, more the business side of the Japanese strength, which is harder to boo. I, I wrote about this in the book. It's kind of easy to go down the Pearl Harbor route, but to go down a... Uh, boo! Your country is economically more sustainable and has a, a greater GDP to ours. Boo! Because... It's like how British
1: people, some British people, are resentful towards drivers of German cars. Like you always hear about BMW drivers and how Audi drivers have since somewhat replaced BMW drivers.
0: Mm. But yeah, this is a bridging gap. So Matsuda invested into the Four Horsemen, which became the Yamazaki Corporation or something like that. And so it was Ric Flair and Barry Windham. And then they were sort of aligned because Matsuda also managed Butch Reed and Kendall Windham. And later on, Michael Hayes gets involved in it as well. But it's never... So it's not the Four Horsemen at this point, but it's something that kind of goes away. and Something
1: akin to it. But... Yeah,
0: yeah. But it was just Matsuda wasn't... You know, Matt Suda was a great wrestler. And of course, famously was one of the great trainers of his time, trained Hulk Hogan and others. Um, but he wasn't, uh, you know, super charismatic. It's not like having a Jim Cornette or a Bobby Heenan. I don't think he gets involved in the match at all. In this. He doesn't. This no. this
1: is why I this is why it was such a jarring, like thing to see because yeah. from the outsider, someone who's not. Been like watching this story week by week as it develops. All I'm seeing is
0: mm.
1: a Japanese man accompanying Ric Flair, and that's it. That that's yeah. all it. Like, he doesn't add any value to yeah, the and match. That's
0: why he was Ric Flair was for a heel always... to have
1: mm. a manager and the manager do nothing
0: mm.
1: in like a big championship match. This doesn't really make sense to me. Unless it's part of the underestimation narrative, Hero didn't think he had to get involved.
0: Yeah, yeah. Rick Ric Flair, and also, you know, it should be pointed out that part of the storyline is that Ricky Steamboat essentially came out of retirement. And that is true. Like, he quit the WWF pretty soon after WrestleMania 3. Well, not actually. It was quite a while after WrestleMania 3, like more November time. And he didn't really wrestle again. I've just got his page up here. I'll just see if I can get it up. So, yeah, he wrestles his last match in WWE. Oh, yeah, because he was in the WrestleMania. Basically, his last match in WWE was WrestleMania 4. He loses the tournament um, first round uh, to Greg Valentine, denying us a Ricky Steamboat, Rick, Randy Savage uh, rematch in the quarters. Ah, uh, okay. Uh, so he, reti- he quits there, and he does retire. He goes off to start his gym. And ten months later, he comes to WCW, and then a um, month after that, he re- he's wrestling for the World Championship. So, he's only had one, two, three, four, five, s- five matches back before he wrestles Ric Flair. And, you know, three of those matches are short TV squash matches, essentially. So, yeah. Wasn't there a tag however, match how- as well, where he... Yeah. Well, that was, when he came, that was when he made his big comeback. He was uh, Eddie Gilbert's guest, um, yeah. surprise tag team partner on a TV show, and Ric Flair just doesn't expect him, and he gets a pin on him from because yeah,
1: yeah,
0: which feeds into the finish of this match because he hits his top rope crossbody that he pinned Flair with in the previous m- match, but he also gets the referee in this
1: have like, a good knee to the head as yeah. well. Like, yeah. Tommy Young puts himself in harm's way.
0: And so, like I said, the dusty finish, it looks like it's about to be in effect because Ric Flair tries to throw Steamboat over the top rope and so the referee can disqualify him after a pinfall's occurred. But Steamboat holds onto the top rope and pulls himself back up, skins the cat, I think. And then he... Um, he misses a crossbody... Rick Flair goes for the figure four. Steamboat does the cradle. Teddy Long's there. He jumps in as a substitute referee. Counts the three. Steamboat wins. Then Tommy Young gets up. You're expecting the screw finish, and Tommy Young lifts Ricky Steamboat's hand up again. The fans cheer another time, and Ricky Steamboat wins his first and only World Heavyweight Championship.
1: And it's... Because it's, I was expecting that whole dusty finish thing after what we'd been through with the... Um... Some of the flare window matches we'd watched, um, but it's—I it, think that takes away from a little bit from the crowd because the crowd are like, "Oh, the backup ref pinned it," and I think they expect the same sort of thing, and it's I like, "No,
0: the fans are less cynical." I think back in those days, they thought that you might have got the pin off that headlock, you know?
1: Yeah, maybe I don't know. To I think me, we I use just
0: use our own smarkiness to it. Perhaps Sometimes I am like... doing that. You've got to remember what most wrestling fans are like, really. And It's not that they're dumb, it's just that they don't follow it the way that we follow it, you know?
1: Mm.
0: It's just like how, you know, obviously people who have played football and are football managers are seeing things in football matches that we can't see. Yeah. We don't understand, similar with boxing matches or whatever. Mixed martial arts fights. Mm. Um, like, like I said, this is always the one that I love to say, is that when I went to a wrestling show at the Sutton Coldfield Town Hall, wrestling show at the Sutton Coldfield Town Hall, capacity maybe 200 people. And my brother, I went with my brothers, and one of them was in the Gents in the uh, interval. And he heard two kids, and one kid says, what do you think of the show so far? And the other kid goes, it's all right, but I was expecting Stone Cold Steve Austin in X-Pac. I don't, I don't know who any of these people are. <laughs> so that's what you've got to realise with wrestling fans. And that's a kid who loves wrestling. Yeah. So it doesn't mean that they necessarily, you know. So I think we sometimes attribute thoughts to people that don't necessarily. True. Share them.
1: I see where you're coming from. I see your point.
0: So that was the like I said, this is the first chapter in a in a longer story. Um. So let's get. We'll try and get this wrapped up pretty quickly because we can do like a more longer summation as we go along. But the big question is, Simon, is this the first? Melt's a five-star match that you would rate five stars?
1: No. No.
0: It didn't have me
1: all the way in. Mm. Ultimately, it's very very good, but I think a five-star match has to have you all the way in, and just not quite.
0: Okay. I would agree insofar as that I don't think it's a five-star match yet, but I think more because this feels like the start of something.
1: Yeah, we don't see a lot of actual... Stuff.
0: Yeah, I really. don't think you get to see Flair at his best because this match isn't supposed to be about Ric Flair being at his best. Yeah. Um, and Ric Flair is the Ric Flair is the hungry challenger might be a more much more interesting thing. Well, we shall see. Mm. We shall see. Do you have anything left to add, or shall we get into the social medias and everything?
1: Ah, um, no, no, I don't have anything left at this point. I, I will just say, um. I do think that the the way because we haven't actually talked a lot about like a great move like in the classic sense that you would have fast on match we've talked more about like the psychology within this particular match which I think is a departure from the way we've discussed previous matches in some senses Um, like the way we've talked this is the most story rich match I think we've talked about Mm. In terms of, like, we've talked about what the tale they're trying to convey is far mean, more than we've talked about what they how they do it in the actual ring.
0: Do you mean, like, the importance of the extra textual elements to it? Yeah. The yeah. things that you maybe need to know a bit more about why these two, because they were rivals for so long, because he's always been the one that's had Ric Flair's number more than anyone, because he's the closest thing to a contemporary to Ric Flair yeah like they come they became stars at the same time they're of similar sizes they they just know each other better than anyone else is that what mm. you're
1: saying Yeah yeah that, that is what i'm saying and the fact that we're talking more about like um not in a I'm not saying any of this in a detrimental way but that we're talking more about how the storyline's progressing mm. rather than how the storyline has got us to this point.
0: Okay. That's absolutely fair enough, and we'll continue more into this when we come back to you in a few days' time with the second match in this Ric Flair-Ricky Steamboat series, but not, as you might be anticipating, the two out of three falls matches at Clash of the Champions 6, because we have an extra match. The Meltzer happened to see a live show in March of 1989 in Landover, Maryland... And that was a match that he said could arguably have been a five-and-a-half or six-star match if everything were just or cause or something like that. I'll get the quote in a minute. So, yeah, we'll talk about that when we when we, when we we uh, get there. But in the meantime, if you want to get in touch with me, that's Lorcan Mullen, L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A for Arm Drag N for Nosferatu. I don't know why I went with Nosferatu. I started with Nos and I had to finish it um that's my twitter facebook uh instagram letterbox whatever if you want to put an e at gmail.com at the end of it that's my email address simon how can people get in touch with you
1: i um, can get in touch with me on twitter where i'm known as simon cross free so known because i thought i'd be able to use the trilogy one um for this series of matches but there is that sneaky fourth match um this is a quadrilogy not a, not a trilogy so i can't quite use that um That number three joke I've used before. And now all my momentum is gone. That is a terrible, terrible segue.
0: (laughs) Well, we'll work on that more. We'll get better as these matches might get better. If that's even hard to believe. We started off with a Ric Flair, Ricky Steamboat level one podcast. Let's see if we can (laughs) kick it up a notch. Let's see if Ric Flair and Ricky Steamboat kick it up a notch. But until then, my name is Logan Mullen.
1: My name's Simon Cross.
0: Thank you for letting us tell you something. Have a five-star time until the next time.